Welcome back, everybody. I'm sorry I was away for so long. I really did miss you all, but Baruch Hashem, we're back. And for an action-packed parashat behalotecha, um, I'd like to dedicate our learning today for the full refuah shelema of Yafa Esther Bat Rachel. Also for Tamar Bat Chuta should have a full refuah shelema. And my friend's dad, Abraham ben Sarah, he should also be restored to his strength and health. It happens to be a beautiful parasha for restoring health. It's going to talk about the menorah and how the oils um, bring light and nourishment. And we're going to talk about more um, how the menorah itself is a depiction of the human body. So let's hope and pray that the body itself is able to be healed from this light that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to start first with a, an overview of the highlights because we're not going to be able to get to everything, but there's a lot of key elements in this week's parasha that I want you to be aware of when you do your own uh, personal studying. So yes, we do start with the instruction for Moshe to tell Aharon to um, light the menorah. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. Um, this parshia is followed by the consecration of the Levi'im, and I just want to make a little point to say the Levi'im have already been designated to be the ones who are going to do this work in the Mishkan, but it start, we start to get a sense of the flow of once you give the Kohen Aharon this charge, it flows from him, and the Levi'im now, once again, are going to be um, mentioned here and about their designation and their role in the Mishkan, their responsibilities in the Mishkan. And then we go on to talk about Pesach Sheini in the desert, and in future subsequent Passovers, those who weren't able to bring Korban Pesach would have an opportunity, they would have what we call a second chance so that they could also feel that they are included and they would celebrate Pesach a month later once they have become ritually pure. Um, it also talks about, as we move forward, um, one of the big parts of this perasha um, that I don't think we're gonna have time to highlight enough, but I want you to know it's here, it says, on the day that the Mishkan was um, set up, was Hekim, really means like uplifted, was brought up, was erected, there was an Anan that covered the Mishkan. And what's very beautiful about this section, it's the end of chapter nine, is that the word itself, Anan, appears 10 times. There is a huge movement, not just in the perasha, but throughout the entire introduction or um, instruction of the Mishkan. There's, it's constantly tipping its hat or going back to the entire creation of the world. The ten ma'amarot, for instance, the ten utterances that God used to create the world. We're going to see a lot of the flavors of the creation of the world together with the creation of the Mishkan. And we had said previously, if the world 
is the space that God created for man, then the Mishkan is the space that man creates to bring God into our world. So these ideas are going to sort of uh, um, highlight themselves. Uh, one of the big stories that takes place is the trumpets are fashioned and what was one of the reasons for the chatzotzrot, those long silver tube-like uh, trumpets, utkatem, they were meant to be blown in many instances, but one of them was when it was time for the camp to travel. And this perasha specifically has in it the idea that when Bnei Yisrael was going to travel, if you have your Chumashim, you could actually see it. If you go to Shul, you'll see it beautifully depicted in the Sefer Torah. It's in, uh, it's at the end of uh, chapter 10. The last verse in chapter 10, or last, I should say, two verses, many of the commentaries that say are a Sefer unto themselves. I know we say the Chamisha Chumshe Torah, and we believe there are five books of Moses, but there is a school of thought that there are actually seven books of Moses. You have Bereshit, Shemont, and Vayikra. Then you have Bemidbar up until verse 35 in chapter 10 in our Perashah this week. So that would be the fourth book. Then this, these two Pesukim would be the fifth book. The rest of Bemidbad would be the sixth book and Devarim would be the seventh book. So I needed you to know that this exists here. There's a very big spacing between the, in the, in the Parshiot where these two Pesukim, I'll read them for you quickly. Vayibin Soa Ha'aron. Vayomer Moshe, Kuma Hashem, Veyafutsu, Oivecha, Veyanusu, Misonecha, Mipanecha, Ubenucho, Yomar, Shuva Hashem, Revevot, Alfe Israel. It's two verses. It's a little bit cryptic, but the verses speak to what Moshe would say when the Aaron was traveling and when the Aaron was placed down again to rest. It's a shi'ud in of itself, but I wanted you to know that it's also part of our uh, weekly perasha. Followed by that, we have the complaining, mi achilenu basar, who's going to feed us meat. You know, same old, same old. Um, Moshe gets very upset by this, and Hashem's solution is twofold. One, for Moshe, he tells him to designate the elders, the zekenim, which later on, are going to be who we know, the 70 elders, as the Sanhedrin. They're going to be comprised from this story. Um, and God also, that's how he responds to Moshe, but he responds to the people. And maybe you'll remember, he's going to give them meat. We know the phrase, Ad asher until it's coming out of their noses. He's referring here to the slav, the quails, that he's going to give them to eat for uh, seven days. Right before the slav comes down, we have another interesting story, and these are all part and parcel of Al Perasha. 
It's the story of Eldad Umedad. They were two prophets who were prophesizing in the camp. And what they were saying was that Moshe is going to they prophesied in the camp and we're not exactly sure what they were prophesizing but according to the commentaries they were saying that Moshe is not going to be the one who's going to take us into Eretz Yisrael that it's actually going to be Yoshua. Regardless, the beautiful line that comes out of this story, and it segues us into the next story, is Moshe's reaction to two men stating a prophecy that he's not going to take them into the land. What's Moshe's reaction? Yoshua, of course, says, Kalem, incarcerate them. Moshe says, and this is for us, I think, one of the most beautiful lines, You want to give Moshe the biggest hug when he says something like this. This is two totally different styles of leadership. Yehoshua is defending his master's honor, saying they need to be jailed. They spoke out against Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu himself, what he says is, I think it's one of the most beautiful lines in education, which is, I wish, halavai, miyitad means like, what would I give? Kol am Hashem nevi'im. If every single person in the nation would be able to be a prophet. He doesn't focus on what they were saying. He focuses on the fact that they are in tuned, connected, their channel is programmed to God, and they are totally uh, uh, inspired, maybe is the word. So rather than be offended by what they say, he is elated from the fact that they are inspired. And I think this is going to be one of the segues that's going to take us back to the menorah story, this inspiring, this lighting up, this allowing for other people's light to shine and for it not to compromise uh, our own light or not in any way for us to feel diminished by somebody else's greatness. I, the whole thing is just very beautiful, but I'll just give you, bring you towards the end so we could go back to the beginning. Um, unfortunately, uh, after this whole story and after the Slav, we have the chapter about Miriam and Aharon speaking out about Moshe, about the woman, the Kushit woman that he took. Again, that's a whole class in and of itself. But right here, the Torah states this famous line, Ve'ha'ish Moshe anav me'od mikol ha'adam. And Moshe the man, my cousin Mary Towel, alayah shalom, on her uh, kever, on her stone in Eretz Yisrael, is a poem that she wrote about Ha'ish Moshe. It didn't only describe him, it described her. There's a certain humility that comes from being able to see other people's greatness and from not taking things personally to understanding where they came from. And so Ha'ish Moshe Anav Me'od Mikol Ha'adam Asher Al Pene Adama to ever stand on the face of the earth 
And what does that mean? And that means that Moshe was not only focused inwardly, he was actually able to see the greatness of other people. And so even when Miriam is saying something that might be offensive possibly to him, he is seeing the greatness of Miriam. He's seeing Miriam, and we do this a lot. You know, somebody offends us and we see the offense. That's normal and that's human. But somebody offends us and we're able to see their greatness at the time of the offense. That is Ha'ish Moshe. We all want to aspire to be Ha'ish Moshe. Or we all want to be aspire to Anav Me'od Mikol Ha'adam. It means that we're able to not, instead of seeing ourselves and how we're attacked and how we feel wronged, we're able to put to shrink that, katan, you know, the word anav, the modesty, the idea of we, we shrink ourselves so something else could expand, whether it's God or others in our presence. But it's also when we do that, the Torah is telling us something else happens that we're not even aware of. When we take ourselves out of the equation, now instead of seeing that person as my offender, I'm able to see the greatness in that person. Who's Miriam to Moshe? If not for Moshe, who knows if Miriam, I'm sorry, if not for Miriam, who knows if Moshe would even be alive today? There's a lot to be said about this. I'm going to move forward, but I just wanted you to know that all of this is in this one perasha. And I also believe it's part of the tone of Behalotcha. It sets the tone of how not only could we elevate ourselves. Look, after a scenario like this, somebody says something offensive to us. What happens? We could get knocked down and we could be the one to knock down the person who said it. And what happened? Nobody's halotcha. Everybody's in a state of yerida and the whole thing's a mess. But behalotcha, how can we take the same scenario and not only elevate ourselves, but even be a source to elevate the person? I'm just going to say one last thing. Anybody who has something negative to say about somebody else, it's because they have negativity inside of themselves. It's their negativity that's ruling the day. A happy person doesn't usually throw stones or curses or say bad things about other people. So that person himself needs uplifting. Even though he is the offender, he needs or she needs uplifting. The whole thing of behalotcha means when you decide to take a certain course or a certain direction, in English we say the high road, ha'alot, the high, high up. When, when you take the high road and you choose to not be offended, not only does the Torah say you're at least sparing yourself the grief, but you also need to give the person a chance to recover and gain back what they're missing in their own lives. And I'll say it now with the next verse so we could go back to the beginning and 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 end with these highlights. Miriam gets sara'at, kashaleg. She gets sara'at like snow. It's funny because when Moshe also had gotten sara'at, he had also, remember when he was given the three signs to go to Mitzrayim, he had also gotten a form of sara'at. 
and he prays for her, and this is the perashah, and that's why I say I hope that all Cholei Yisrael, anybody who's in need of any kind of refuah, whether it's refuat hanefesh, refuat haguf, or both, whether we need physical or mental healing, the answer is in these words, in this week's perashah, Moshe prays for his sister, short and sweet, five words, el na refana la. That's it. We have five words of Moshe praying for the person who wronged possibly him. Moshe is going to pray for her. And we hope that the prayer that he said for her will extend itself to all Chole Amech Yisrael, to all of the people who are sick. And the end of the perasha is really where I wanted to bring you to because it's going to take us back to the beginning. It happens to be that the time frame that she is uh, quarantined for, because a person with sarat has to be quarantined, is seven days, shivat yamim. She has to go michutz lamachaneh. Now, two beautiful things happen from this little story. Number one, the fact that shiva, shivat yamim, shivat yamim, shivat yamim appears three times. That's one beautiful piece that we're going to use to go back to the beginning. This idea of seven and three. Hold on to that thought. But also the beautiful poetic justice, how she waited for her brother. She waited to see when he was bobbing along in the sea of reeds, in his little basket. She waited for him. And now not only does her brother wait for her, nobody travels. This is the parasha that we were talking about, the traveling. Nobody travels for seven days, not only her brother Moshe, but the entire nation of her brothers, literally, her her whole uh, nation waits for her for seven days. One small act of kindness, you know, when Hashem repays a kindness, elef pe'amim, he pays it thousands of time over, and everybody does wait for her. So we had put the seven and the threes on ice, I'm going to defrost them back, bring them back into our story now. Let's go back to the beginning of the perasha which is going to talk about the menorah. And the reason I said the seven and three of Miriam, the seven days that's repeated three times in her story, is really how we started our perasha. We're going to have seven lights. We have the three branches and the center uh, light that's comprised of seven lights. And in order to get the seven lights, we have those three branches. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the um, menorah right now. And the first thing I'm going to say, because I, I, I'm definitely not in one lifetime going to be able to do this perasha justice, but I am convinced that the more I learn, the less I know. I thought I knew about the menorah. I thought I got it and understood it. And as I keep reading it, I'm becoming more and more aware of um, how much is being said here. I feel like 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 an iPhone user who's using two percent of the capacity of what what it could do. 
that's that's me and the menorah. But I'll I'll try and share my my minuscule portion of understanding with you today, and um, maybe we should start by talking about the menorah itself and its placement in the Mishkan, because where it's placed specifically tells a story as well. So let's start from the beginning very easily. We hopefully all by now have some type of a visual of the Mishkan. And I'm going to start from the centerpiece of the Mishkan, which we all know is the Kodesh HaKodashim. Now, I want you to orient yourselves from now. I want you to picture if you were to walk into the Mishkan, you would pass the Chatzer, the courtyard, you'd actually first pass the Ezrat Hanashim, the women's quarters, then you'd get to the Chatzer, that's where most of the activities took place, that's where the big um, altar was where people brought their sacrifices, and if you kept walking, you'd get to the Kodesh, which you would not be allowed into, only the Kohanim were allowed in the Kodesh, and then to, if you kept moving forward, you would get to what's called the Kodesh HaKodashim, that only the Kohen Gadol was allowed to enter once a year on Yom Kippur. So now you have this idea of this straight line coming in and the levels of access and levels of uh, holiness that existed. But what I needed you to orient is you're entering from the East. So the Kodesh HaKodashim, which is the Holy of Holies, is the furthest towards the West. If the Kodesh HaKodashim is at the West, then the entrance to the Mikdash is at the East. And why all of this is important to us is because I want to place for you the Menorah. And it's very important that we know that as we're walking in, it's going to be to our left or otherwise known as the south. So if the menorah is on the south, then the showbread is going to be at the north. And if you want to make a little cheat sheet or a diagram for yourself, it's not a bad idea because where we're going to go with this is symbolic on one level, but I think it's very practical on the other level because we're going to want to ask why was the menorah placed towards towards the south when the showbread was placed towards the north. And then in case you, I haven't lost you yet, in between those two in the Kodesh is the Mizbeach HaZahav, is the golden altar. So if you have a picture of this, and one of these days I'm gonna learn how to share my screen so you could be looking at the picture and have a stronger visual. But what I want you to picture is the Kodesh HaKodashim, now we're going to work our way back, if you were coming out of the Kodesh HaKodashim and you made a straight line, the first thing you would bump into would be the Mizbeach HaZahav, the golden altar. And just to clarify, that was the altar that the incense was burnt on, and it created a smoke screen. And many people believe that the purpose for that to be situated right in front of the Aron was so that the people, when the curtains would be open, picture like in the shul, we have the curtain and then you have the Sefer Torah. If the curtain is open, lo yad eni ha'adam v'chai. 
man cannot look upon the presence of God and stay alive. So it was sort of a protection, a smokescreen, a barrier between the people that might be in the Chatzid or further back and the Kodesh. So that was the buffer. But we still have to talk about the menorah and the showbread. I'm going to talk about mostly the menorah because that's what's featured in our perasha this week. And there's an interesting debate. We all agree that the menorah, again, if you're facing the Aron, coming from the outside, it's on your left. But nobody says specifically which way the menorah pivots. Does the menorah face the showbread? Or does the menorah pivot, do we turn it, and it faces the Aron? And I think that the question is a beautiful question because when there's no answers, there's elu ve'elu. We have many answers. And one of the understandings that comes about is that if the menorah is facing the showbread, means, meaning its, its arms are going from east to west, if it's facing the showbread, it gives a sense, if you think now of a, a map, when somebody goes east to west, it's as if they're broadening, they're expanding through the uh, physical plane, they're going from east to west. So if we see the menorah as a way to become enlightened, or we see the menorah as a vehicle through which we could enlighten and ignite others, how do we come to the place of being a human menorah? We need to expand east to west, which means we have to have this breath or width about us, which very much the idea of expanding east to west, or I usually call it in other classes, this horizontal movement, for instance, this width movement, would describe the um, actions or the tapping in to the heart. Because in order to connect horizontally, let's talk about if we needed to connect with people, we need to sort of have an open heart. I'll give you the other side of it and then we'll bring them together. But if we say that the menorah was facing the Aron, that would mean that the menorah was oriented north to south, facing the Aron. Think of north to south, again, think of those coordinates, if you were to imagine them on a map, north and south, which way would that be for us? That would be a vertical connection. And a vertical connection, a north to south connection, if we wanted to consider that of how we would connect, let's just say, to the above, to the divine, heaven and earth, that axis of uh, below to above, we would usually say that's not a very physical connection. That's much more a either spiritual or mental connection. And so if we say that facing the Aron, the menorah represents the mind, and facing the showbread, the menorah would represent the heart. 
And then it gives us a beautiful uh, um, understanding of what does it mean to actually be a human menorah. How can we either enlighten our, ourselves? Yes, we need to tap into both the heart and the mind. And if we need to enlighten others and ignite others, we also need to have both. And sometimes we need to pivot one way more, and sometimes we need to pivot the other way more. But this Beha Alotecha, the word itself, it says Beha Alotecha et Hanerot. It should say Beha Alot. It shouldn't say when you rise, raise yourself up to the candles. The Torah is saying that when you ignite something, you're not just igniting that thing, you're also raising yourself up. You're also uplifting yourself. And this is where we start to get the understanding. And like I said, if we understand 1% of it, we're, we're, we're meriting to, to just begin to see a little taste of what lied in these magical, magnificent vessels of the Torah. And so for today, I'd like to suggest what's been suggested for thousands of years, that every one of the vessels and that the Mishkan itself is a microcosm, not just of the physical world, but is a microcosm of the human body. And I know we're bordering on Kabbalistic ideas here, but there are some very concrete words that the Torah is going to use when it describes the vessels. The vessels have hands. The vessels have ribs. The vessels have lips. Kil ayim. They have brackets. They have yerachim. They have thighs. Um, there, is so, there is so much language associated even here El mul El menorah has a face. Ad until her thighs. The words that are used to describe these vessels are used as well to describe parts of the human body. And even I read something beautiful that it said, why does it say peneha menorah? Again, you need a good visual, so if you need to close your eyes, it's okay. But if you're going to imagine the menorah, the three branches with the stem in the middle, they say the menorah exactly resembles the human face. How? The outer uh, holes, the outer branches, represent the ears. Those are the two holes on the side of the face. And as you move inward, there are two eyes. Those are also two openings. And we start to understand that in order to become enlightened and in order to be a source of light, we need to have these openings from which light and intelligence can flow. So of course we can hear with our ears, we can see with our eyes. These are ways of becoming enlightened. And as you come closer towards center, the next two openings that are perfectly symmetric, by the way, because they're the two sides of the same branch. 
So the ears are two sides of the bottom branch. The next branch as we go up are the eyes. The next branch as we come towards center are the two nostrils. Linshom, to breathe, like neshama. The idea that the uh, uh, um, that we need to inhale or we need to take in and what, how does breathing work? There's an inhale and an exhale. So when it comes even to things like information or enlightenment, we need to be able to take in and to pour out. And that those would be the two nostrils. And then the center stem, which only has one, it's a center stem of the menorah, which only has one opening, that is the mouth. That is the opening of the mouth. And so this idea of ha'alotecha, and you know what's very beautiful? It's beautiful that there are, I think Rashi depicts the menorah where the lights all face towards the center and then the center light goes up. We can't underestimate the mouth and its ability to be a source for enlightenment. And maybe that's another little piece that ties a pretty bow around our whole perasha that we start by saying the mouth is the place for Or, for Behalotecha, and with Miriam, because she spoke out something that was improper, inappropriate, or in God's eyes, uh, unacceptable, that mouth, that's the part that needs to be highlighted here. They always say the Torah gives the cure before it gives the illness. The Menorah is telling us we, as representations, if we're going to parallel the vessels, then we have to be aware of our organs, how they serve us, and how they could also, God forbid, you know, bring us to a place that's not, let's just stay positive, let's learn on how our organs could help ha'alot us, could help actually uh, bring us up. And what starts to take form here, what we start to see happening is the Torah starts saying, uh, you know, there's that big question, um, is man an olam katan? Are we a small world? Or is the world, is the olam a large man? These are sort of like questions that start to you know, play with our mind. Are we a small world? And, and really, what, what does that mean? The idea of every single person being a mini world. So I'm going to press the pause button on this and maybe go into a place that's easy for us to um, digest and then bring it back here so that we could take it God willing, um, to the next level. So let's go first and just a couple of pieces because I see them here in my notes. I don't want to miss them. Uh, when we were talking about the Mishkan being like the human body, uh, it talks about the curtains being stretched, for instance, the tapestries being stretched around all of the organs. That would give us a very good sense of a human body and how it has, we have our own curtains, our skin, and how that is stretched uh, all, of around, all around us. Um, it talks about the Aron, that it compares it to the head, and it says the Aron contained both the broken Luchot and the Luchot that were intact to represent the conscious and the subconscious. Um, 
It talks about the rib cages and how they were covered in gold and how our ribs are covered in flesh. Again, I just wanted to round that concept out a little bit so that we start to see ourselves as, and we know the line of Asuli Mikdash Veshachanti Betocham, we are, of course, mini Mikdashim, mini uh, tabernacles, mini sanctuaries, and God resides within us. But with all this, I'd rather take us for now for a minute to an easy, simple, uh, so you could take a little bit of a, a breather for a minute. It's one of my favorite places anyway, so I don't mind going back here over and over. But I want to take you to one of the earlier places where we see this concept, where man recognizes his role and his place and his space. And um, speaking, of course, about Jacob's Ladder, you know I love that place. And I came here specifically because that ladder is the representation of a connection between heaven and earth. It shows us that yes, the human body isn't just, the spiritual and the physical aren't just connected, but the human being is the latter. And I'll show it to you from the words of, it's um, all the way in Bereshit, in Parashat Vayetze. I'll first tell you the dream quickly where Yaakov leaves Be'er Shava, he goes to Haran. It's in chapter 28. I'm in verse 10, the beginning of Parashat Vayetze. Vayifga bamakom vayalen sham. We've read this many times together. Um, Yaakov is now going to be in a place or in a physical state where he is completely horizontal. He is going to Vayalen Sham, and we had said that all the verbs are confounded because it speaks to his mental state. He's going to first lie down because the sun is setting. It should, the sun should set, and then he should lie down. But anyway, he takes from the stones of the place, which he should have done already. One prepares their bed. And we had said back in the day that maybe these stones that he's taking to depict the state of mind that he's in at this point is maybe he was preparing his own tombstone. At this point, Yaakov, he's a fugitive, he's humiliated, he's running away from his brother, he's going towards who knows where. Uh, if you follow the Midrashim, he might be penniless, he might be cold, <laughs> he needs a bigot, little bush, and you'll, you'll see it all come here together. But he puts these stones by his head, Vayishkav bamakom haho. And the word makom appears three times in this verse to start to tell us, reader, this is a makom. And I have to stress this here as well in our class. We don't have a mishkan and we don't have a tabernacle. And many of us are not in the makom. We're not right now in Eretz Israel. But I think one of the most important things that the Torah is going to stress for us is that we may not be at the makom, but we can access and be the makom in the place that we choose to connect to God that's the place that God is going to come. So rather than just have this uh, 
idea that kedusha is exclusive to one place or one space, the makom is the place that we choose to bring the divine. So let's go into that with that knowledge today. He dreams and he sees a sulam mutzav arza. I know we've done this a lot, but I want you to see it now through the eyes of the mishkan, through the eyes of the menorah, and through the role that we play in being an olam katan, a mini world or a mini mikdash. So I'd like for us to read about the dream and see how we are the latter. Where do we fit in? Well, it starts easily. The sulam is mutsav, is nitsav, it's standing. Verosho magia hashamayma. And we know in the laws of physics that a ladder needs to lean on something in order for it to, again, I'm picturing the ladder with the rungs, not the ones that you buy today in Home Depot that give you the second set of legs so it could stand on its own. A sulam is literally a ladder like the number 11 with the rungs on it. That can't possibly be mutsav arza with roshomaki. And we know dreams show things that really don't happen in the natural world. Well, what the sulam is depicting here is saying Yaakov is watching and seeing that in his dream, it is possible for something to stand only on two legs and yet be able to reach all the way from the south to the north. The vertical axis could be direct, which starts to tell us the most important thing which is we, with our own two feet, can stand, nitzav, we could be mutzavim, and if we're standing upright with purpose, we too could reach the heavens. And contrary to secular thought, or Home Depot for that matter, we don't need an extra set of legs to support us in order to reach the heavens. The ladder that's being depicted here is saying when you stand on your own two feet, like a nitziv, like you're in command with purpose, then you can reach the heavens even though it doesn't seem physically plausible. You don't need to lean on anything other than on the fact that you are mutsav, that you're standing erect and with purpose. And rosho, we said there's a lot of language, it speaks to the human body, the head, magia, it's in a state of reaching hashamayma. Don't think that you have to be there. The journey is the most important part. The striving, the yearning, the trying, the struggle, the part that you're not still there, but you're still in the game, that's what's going to keep you mutzav. The minute you think you've gotten there, the whole thing's going to collapse. The tension, I should use that word, the stretching, the pulling upwards is what's going to keep you upright. The magia is such an important word in this verse. I, I, I don't want to let it go unnoticed. It's magia hashamayma. And hineh, we say, malache Elohim, the angels of God, olim veyordimbo. They're not just going up and down the ladder. Once we accept that 
Yaakov, or we are the latter. And once we choose to make this uh, vertical stance, then what's going to happen to us? We too will have angels bo. Olivia bo means within us. I understand in the laws of physics, it's impossible to have a, uh, I don't even know how many meters or yards or miles it is from earth to heaven. I don't even know that anybody knows that number. But whatever that number is, it's impossible for a structure that long to just stand on its own. So you're not on your own, says Torah. You have Malachi Elohim, Olim You're not supported from without. It's not that you need those extra angles and legs to hold you up. The balance required for you to reach the heavens is internal strength, is an internal knowledge that you have. You're not by yourself. You have these angels that are inside of you and the angels are balancing you to reach the heaven. I mean, the whole thing is just a very beautiful depiction. And in this story, you don't get nicer than this. When Yaakov in his dream as a ladder is reaching the heavens, what is God doing? God's also Nitzav. God's also mirroring what we're doing. So when we're reaching towards the heavens, the most beautiful image I have is the image of us reaching with our hands up towards the heavens. What's happening in the heavens? God's reaching and his hands are reaching down and we're connecting us and him. This is the representation of what, you know, there's one parasha, one chapter on creation of the world. One. One, how about Pedek? Uh, Pedek Aleph talks about the creation of the world. There's at least 13 chapters dedicated to the building of the Mishkan. Why is God giving so much airtime to the Mishkan building? Because he's saying what you're doing down there to go from below to above is so important. I'm going to give you 13 chapters in my book to talk about it. What I'm doing to come down from above to below, reaching my hands down to pull you up, that only needs one chapter. What you're doing, that gets prime billing. And so we see as we read the rest of his dream, Hashem nitzav alav, and he tells him, you're not alone. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of your grandfather. And you're on holy land. I'm going to give it to you and to your children like the dust of the earth. And here we have our... Yama Vakedma Tsafona Vanegba. We have here the coordinates, the north, east, west, south, Uparatsta. What does that mean that you're gonna to spread to the north, to the east, to the west, and to the south? Now we know it means that you're gonna have width and you're gonna have length and you're gonna expand your heart and you're gonna expand your mind because I'm gonna stretch you, I'm gonna stretch your coordinates of your heart and of your mind, uparatsta. That's gonna be the blessing. The blessing is when every human being expands his heart and his mind to its capacity, which we know that the human brain never, I don't think, reached 10%. 
They say the smartest people used, I don't know, seven, eight percent of the capacity of the human brain. So you could just imagine. But when you stretch to your own capacity, your heart and your mind, that's what's going to be blessing, not just for you. And we know and we see it. Ki mitziyon Torah. Not just Torah comes from Mitzrayim. I mean, from Eretz Yisrael, excuse me. What's coming from Eretz Yisrael? What is flowing? I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Google it. You want literature? You want music? You want medicine? You want innovation? You want technology? What do you want? Whatever you want, at the top of the game, it's all coming from Eretz Yisrael. Nothing to disgust. So kol mishpechot, the whole world is going to benefit. And then he says, I'm with you. What is all this for us today for our perashah? If we want to be ve'ha'alotecha, if we want to be able to stand upright, if we want to be people who are enlightened and a light unto the nations, then these words have to burn clearly within us. This is a flame that's within us that says, Anochi imach, I am with you. You're not alone. Menorah does not light itself. It has oil, and the oil is lit, and it's a process. Your menorah is not alone, and you're not alone. And in case you think you're alone, God's saying, you have a grandfather that I was with, you have a father, you have um, yichus, you have a connection, you have a past, you're creating a future, and I am part of that. And the most beautiful words, we can't leave them on the page. He says... I will not leave you. What is God telling us here? Once we are in this realm where we have our hands stretching up, we may not be there yet, but we're on the road, we're on the way, we're uh, checked in, so to speak. When we're on that road, what's God saying? I'm not removing my hands. I will not leave you until I do everything that I promised. And this is where we have the beautiful verse that Yaakov wakes up. It says, Mishnato. He had a shinui. He has a change. And what does he say? Yes. God is absolutely, positively in this place. He's not just saying, I didn't know that God was in this place. Maybe he's saying, my own greatness, my own godliness, my own ability to shine and to pour forth light. My anochi, my godliness that I have inside myself, I was not even aware of. And he says, This place and this space inspires awe, the knowledge that within I have such great Shekhinah residing. He says, this is Bet Elohim. Yes, the physical place and space and that rock we believe is the rock of Harabayit. Yes. But when he says, in in bet Elohim, he might also be referring to Wah. His own inner self is the house of God. Vezeh sha'ar hashamayim. You know where the gate to the heaven is? 
Do you know how we can reach the most holy of holies? Do you know what the Kodesh HaKodashim really is today when we don't have one? The Kodesh HaKodashim and the Sha'at HaShamayim is literally within us. And it's not me being poetic. I think it's a Peshat reading of the text. And what does he do? He takes the Evan, that very same Evan that could have been his tombstone. This is what's so beautiful. One element could serve as the end, as now I lay me down to sleep, as the end of his life. He takes the very same Evan, and what does he do? The one that he had put by his head, and he makes it a matseva. Instead of it being a stone to uh, indicate downward movement, it's a matseva, nitzav, it's a monument that is oriented upwards. Vayitzok shemen al rosha. Even the evin has a head now. Everything is coming to life around us. Even the most inanimate object, a stone, domem, it belongs to the world of demama, it's totally asleep, so to speak. So he pours oil, when he's pouring oil on that stone, what is he really doing? He's reanointing himself, he's reinvigorating himself, he's inaugurating his own self, and he calls that place Bet El. Yes, the physical place is called Bet El, but every one of our places and spaces within us, that's called Bet El too. And this story here just brings to light for us and sort of, for me at least, it encapsulates what the uh, image of the menorah is. Look, I, I'm, I don't understand it myself, so I certainly can't teach it, but if you want on your own time to Google the images of the menorah and the depictions that have it as each one of the seven lights corresponding and paralleling another one of the seven sefirot, another one of the emanations, I, I'm not qualified to teach this. I could just tell you that it's out there and it exists. There's Hod, Givurah, all of these uh, words that are names of different spheres and levels, you know, Netzah, Chesed, all this. And the middle, the stem, the spine of the Menorah is Malchut, is kingship. There is, like I said, the more I learn, the less I know. I'm not able to own it and give it over to you, but I want you to know that these elements and these teachings exist. One thing that is actually very, very beautiful is Rabbam, Maimonides. I think you, if you're already Googling images, then Google this because you'll love it. He makes a drawing, imagine, of the menorah, which has 22 cups, like the goblets that hold the oil, but in his drawing, the goblets are all upside down. And we're looking at this and we're saying Maimonides, he was a very precise, intelligent, understood the laws of physics. And anybody knows that if you're gonna put a cup of oil upside down, it's not gonna be able to hold the oil. And the interpretations of his menorah are so beautiful. He wanted us to see 
that the flow of shefa, of oil, of sustenance, of uh, beneficence, if that's a word, you know, uh, this idea that we're being showered, he drew them upside down because he wanted to say, don't imagine that all of the blessing is going upwards. I want you to see the menorah as it's showering and dripping and drenching us with its oil, inaugurating us maybe like the oil that Yaakov put on that rock. It wants us to feel that we are being totally coated with this uh, sense of beracha. So I just thought that that was also a very beautiful way to uh, be able to see the, the menorah. I'm going to end today's class because I see the clock is ticking and I would hate to miss this piece. There's a very beautiful haftara for parashat behalotecha. Um, we're off one parasha with Israel because we had Shavuot on a Saturday, so they're uh, ahead of us. But in Chutz La'aret here, where we're reading parashat behalotcha this week, we read the Haftarah, which is from Zechariah. And I think this to me, if nothing else gives you the chills, then maybe this will. In the, okay, I should tell you where we are. Zechariah chapter four. We'll just read the first couple of lines. The Haftarah starts out in um, chapter two but I am going to fast forward towards the end of it to chapter four. So if you have the Blue Chumashim, it's on page 1183. If you have a Tanakh, Zechariah chapter four. And it says, it, it starts with uh, an angel returns, the one that had spoken to Zechariah and woke him up as one would keish asher yeor mishnato, like a man who awakens from his dream. Hopefully you're starting to see the connection of Jacob's ladder, vayikatz mishnato, he also wakes up from his dream. And now Zechariah is awakened also. And the angel asks him, vayomer elai, ma what do you see? And he says, I see a menorah, ra'iti, v'hine menorat zahav. I see a menorah of gold kula, completely gold. And it has a gula al rosha. It has a bowl on top of its head, and it has seven lamps and seven tubes. And each of those, and each one of them has tubes on top. It's describing very closely the menorah that was made in the Beit Hamikdash. And I should say this also because we didn't have a chance. But the way the menorah was constructed was nothing short of miraculous because it was one block of gold, and the gold was carved away to leave the menorah itself in one piece intact, which is a very difficult feat in the physical world that as you're chiseling, that no part of it should break with all of its uh, intricacies, which is also very much as the human being, we are all one whole. Every part of us is integrated. um, And we'll see it now with this 
this most beautiful ending uh, um, part of the of the haftara. So the angel asks Zechariah, what do you see? And he describes what he sees. I see a menorah, it's gold, it has the three branches, it has the seven tubes, very much like our menorah. And then verse three is the whole thing. He says, there are two ushnayim zeitim aleha, echad mimin hagula veechad al smola. What does this menorah have in his dream? It has two olive trees. One olive tree is on its right, and one olive tree is on its left. And what is the imagery showing us, and why are we reading this haftarah here with the idea of the menorah and the idea of the uh, uh, mishkan and a person's role in the physical world? is because the menorah has everything it needs in the physical world. The physical world already is providing for the menorah to be constantly ignited to the point that the tree itself that gives the oil is planted on both sides of the menorah so that it could keep it flowing constantly with oils. And what does that tell us? What is God depicting in this haftarah? Is if we consider ourselves a menorah, we should know that he's already designated in the physical world that which we need to burn brightly, that which we need so that we could enlighten ourselves and enlighten the world. It's all part of our uh, um, of God's original design for the world. And there's a beautiful, I'll end with the pasuk from Mishle, hopefully you know it. It's Mishle chapter 20, verse 27. Ned Hashem, Nishmat Adam, Chofes Kol Baten. The candle of God. What is God's candle? What is God's light? Nishmat Adam, the soul of man. Our soul is his candle. We are what he ignites. And it, he's able to, when he ignites us, he ignites kol chadre baten, everything. When we're ignited by God, our whole, everything is lit up. It's like picturing electricity. You switch the circuit breaker and everything lights up. But I think the next one is the nicest verse. It doesn't get as much attention, so we'll give it a little attention today. The next verse, verse 28, says, Chesed ve'emet, Yitzru melech. You know what's going to keep malchut? You know what's going to keep us being kings? You know what's going to keep the light shining? Chesed ve'emet. Chesed, you might want to say, could be the heart, Emet, you could say maybe would be the mind, the vertical, the horizontal. Vesaad bechesed kiso. That's what's going to maintain our seat and God's seat. Picture God when you leave today with his arms stretched down from the heavens saying, hold my hands, I got you, I got you. You're not falling, you're not sinking. I'm here. All you have to do is reach up and I got you.
And that's what the Perasha, I believe, is telling us. Behalotecha, raise up, orient yourselves up, pick up your hands, use your mind, use your heart, pick up others, allow the light to flow. If you think of the windows even, and I'll end with this, the windows of the Bet HaMikdash, they were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside. Why is that? It's because the light was intended to flow out. The light, it was projecting. So picture uh, uh, something like a megaphone, something that's small and then opens outwards. It starts in a small place and then it, it uh, expands outward. And that's what we are. We're intended to be. If we're a Mishkan, then this light, little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine so much that even though it's little in here, I have the ability to project it outwards to the world. And in doing that, what happens? In doing that, we ourselves become ignited. The leaves and the olive trees are going to keep pouring their oil into us. Rambam's menorah is going to drench us with shefa, with blessing, with enlightenment, with beracha, with health, with happiness for everybody, for kol am Yisrael. Thank you for joining me. And for those of you whose beautiful faces I could see, it means the world to me. Thank you. Welcome everybody to Parashat Shalach. Uh, it's an action-packed perasha. This is the famous perasha where the scouts go into the land and they bring back a report. We end up having to stay in the desert for 40 years and sort of the rest is history, but I'd like to go into that story a little bit more in depth and hopefully come out of it um, enlightened and informed and educated for our own lives and for the own paths, for our paths that um, hopefully we'll choose to take while we're navigating our way to our promised land. So I'd like to dedicate um, today's class to the full and continued refuah shalema of Yafa Esther Batrachel and for um, Avraham ben Sarah, for Tamar Batchuta, and for Kol Cholea Mecha Yisrael, anybody in need of refuah, emotional, physical, or in any other capacity. So let's go straight into Perasha. It's on chapter 13 in Bemidbar. We start the Perasha with what seems to be God's initiative. Hashem speaks to Moshe Lemor, and in Pasuk 2 it says, Shalach lecha anashim, send for yourself men, v'yaturuet eretz kena'an, and let them either tour, like the word turu, tour, scout, survey maybe, the land of Kena'an that I'm going to give to Bnei Israel. ish echad, ish echad lematea avotav, one man, from the tribe of his patriarchal side, his father's side, Tishlechu Kol Nesibahem. So practically speaking, every tribe is going to send a prince, a representative, the head of the tribe. Um, these were upstanding, um, celebrated men of their tribes. We sent the best of the best, and the big question we're going to have bef 
before we even move forward is we have a few questions. What was the purpose for their going? It says, Vyaturu, which seems to mean that they're going to tour the land they're going to. And it's going to be specific because Moshe is going to give them points about what they should be looking for once they get to Eretz Israel. So it's going to be partially to see the land and its soil and its agriculture and all of that. But also we want to see the, um, not just the topography, but the people themselves, the city itself. Is it a fortified city? Is it not a fortified city? When we start the Pedasha, the reader is not exactly sure what the purpose is because God already told us it's a beautiful land, so why do we have to go check it out? And if it's for a military plan, then God also told us that he is going to give us that land. So what is exactly going on here? That's one little set of questions. Another set of questions that just compounds the entire issue is there are really two accounts, at least, of this same story. In this story, it says that Hashem spoke to Moshe and said, send men to go scout the land of Eretz Canaan. It would seem that this initiative was brought about by God himself. And then, of course, the commentaries come in and they say, well, uh, the people wanted it, so God sanctioned it, um, things like that. But just from the plain Peshat, if you could keep your marker here and go for a minute to Sefer Devarim, chapter 1, in verse 21, for instance, where Moshe is speaking to the people, he says, Re'eh, see, Hashem gave you this land. Aleh, go up, rash ka'asher diber Hashem. The way Hashem had said that you're going to inherit the land, the way he told your fathers, go up and inherit the land. And verse 22 paints a different story. It says, Vatikrivune laikulchem. But you all came to me, Vatomru, and you said, Nishlecha Anashim, let us send men lefanenu in front of us. Vayichapru lanu et ha'aretz. So that they could, I'm going to use the word spy for now, so they could spy the land and they could vayashivu otanu davar. They could bring word back and they could tell us which is gonna be the best way to enter the land. So just in our little Bimidbar and Devarim, we have two different accounts of what happened. The first account, it was God's idea. The second account, it was man's idea. And of course you could marry them and say, it was man's idea and God uh, acquiesced and said, sure, if you wanna go see the land, then go right ahead. Um, there are a couple of interesting midrashim, and maybe I'll cite one of them. Rabbi Yoshua tells a story about a king who finds the perfect bride for his son. She comes from a beautiful family, she's wealthy, she herself is beautiful, and she, the king tells his son, I found you the perfect bride. And the son says, well, I'd like to see her. 
And the father's thinking to himself, oh, that must mean that my son doesn't trust my judgment or doesn't trust that when I say that this bride is perfect for him, that she's perfect for him, he wants to make his own decision. And the father says, if I don't show him the bride, then he's going to think I'm hiding her from him and she's really not as pretty. Why wouldn't I show her if she's as gorgeous as I say she is? So he comes to the conclusion, and of course this is all a midrash to sort of explain what's going on here. He, it's connected to us, so I'm going to mute everybody, sorry. <laughs> um, so the king decides, what's he going to do with this girl? He says, okay. He shows his son the girl and says, because you didn't have faith and trust in me, and you didn't go by my say-so, now you're not gonna get to marry her. Your son is gonna marry her. And of course, the Midrash is, if you're not gonna trust and have faith that Eretz Yisrael is as beautiful as God said it is, then you're not gonna go in there, but your children will. So there is this sort of a little bit of a cloud, even in terms of the commentaries on how we feel about the sending of these people in the first place. I'm going to take a step back and say one thing we should all be aware of is that in the Pirasha, never once does the word Meraglim appear. We're not talking here about spies. Meraglim, and what's the difference between Tarim, tomato, and tomato, between Meraglim and Tarim, so big deal. There's a huge difference between the two. Just so we know for, for your own independent study later on, the Haftarah is chapter 2 of Yehoshua, where he's going to send Meraglim, specifically spies. There's going to be two of them, and they're going to go into the land. And we're going to use those meraglim to sort of uh, contrast these tarim. The reason I say that, so let me talk about tarim for a minute. So let me talk about meraglim first, because that's what we usually associate when we hear the word spies. Spies is usually in, in spies usually involve like a hidden. Uh, covert operation. This is not something that the public even knows about. There's an aura of secrecy. It's like the FBI, the top people only report back to the top people and everybody else doesn't even know that this stuff is going on. These missions, these military secret spy missions are not something that... Um, the masses will typically know about. That's what defines Meraglim in the book of Yehoshua. The regular nation doesn't even know that the two men went. They came back and reported directly to Yehoshua. They didn't even know that they came back. And nobody, and while they were undergoing their mission on foreign soil, they were so covert that once their um, identity was discovered, they had to, their cover was blown, they had to literally hide and, you know, uh, have Rachav hide them under the flax and all of that. So Meraglim is one story. Tarim, or Latur, 
from the word to tour or to scout, I would like you to have in mind a tourist, not a spy, but a tourist. What is a tourist? A tourist, you could spot them a mile away. The tourist is the guy who's holding the map, who has a camera hanging around his neck back in the day before your phone was a camera. You could tell a tourist in a heartbeat. And what the tourist usually is coming to do, he's usually looking for, so I should say this, a spy is looking for weakness. A spy is looking to see where can we enter, how can we find their weakest uh, area so that we could penetrate and attack them. It's, it's a military mission. But a tourist usually has the 10 top places that they should visit. And they're usually going, they don't want to see the horrible parts of the city. They usually want to see the best parts, the tourist attractions, things that would attract a tourist is something unusual or pretty or beautiful or different. And so maybe the Torah is using the word if God is telling Moshe that they should go as Tarim, maybe all he's saying is, you know something? I want them to get pumped up. I want them to get excited. They have been, they've, I've been telling them about this place, Eretz Israel, that I'm going to bring them to. I've been telling them it's Zavat Chalav Udvash. It's flowing with milk and honey. I've been telling them all this, but maybe, you know, if you're going to take your kids on a trip somewhere, you want to sort of get them excited. Half the excitement is the preparation and the anticipation of the trip itself. So let me allow these men to bring back and, and get the people excited about where they're going to. That could also be a way to see what's going on. Um, the Torah goes and lists the names of the heads of the tribes. Um, their, Levi does not send a representative. That's why there's only 12 men, because we have Ephraim and Menasheh taking the place of Yosef. So we still have the count of 12. And of course, they mention for us our famous spies, uh, Kalev, I mean, not spies, scouts, um, Kalev and Yehoshua. Yehoshua is coming from uh, the tribe of Ephraim. Um, and we keep moving on. So they go to the land. And now we're going to fast forward. Um, and by the way, Kalev, we should know, I should have mentioned this before, Kalev is from the tribe of Yehuda. And knowing already what we know about Shevet Yehuda, whether it's from the past, everything we know about how Yehuda made his turnaround and to how uh, he is the Ari, he is the king, he is the one that's going to be a leader. So we're keeping our eye, if we're gonna put the spotlight on anybody, we're gonna keep an eye on Kalev, and it happens to be very beautiful that he's gonna team up with Ephraim, one of the children of Yosef, because Yosef and Yehuda had a special bond to begin with. So maybe have that in mind, um, as we are going through our story. Anyway, so Moshe sends them in verse 17, make no mistake, Latur et Eretz Kena'an, and he tells them, 
עלו זה בנגב, come from the south, ועליתם את ההר. I know it sounds like a practical coordinate, go from the south and head way north, which is very practical, because if you're coming from Egypt or from the Sinai and you're going to Israel, you're going to first hit the south of Israel, and then if you continue... Uh, uh, your course, you're going to end up in the north. But it says, It also might be code for the reader saying, you're going to start on the bottom, you're going to start in the negative, you might start at something negative, negative or something low, but make sure that you climb the top of that mountain. Maybe there's something that's being alluded here to say that going to Eretz Israel is something, it's an endeavor from the bottom up. You're going to go, you're going to have to start, and we know. Anina Titi, that song, Be'eretz Israel. You have to literally work the land from the bottom up. You have to put the seeds in and they have to sprout. You have to use your hands and literally make something in order to get to the top when it comes to Eretz Israel. So this pasuk already for us, even modern day is saying, Eretz Israel is not intended to be a silver platter uh, endeavor where you go and even though on one hand, it's called Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash. It's flowing with milk and honey. Milk still has to be pulled out, and honey has to be, had the, the dates, usually honey meant from dates. The, hun- the dates have to actually ripen and be so mature in order for that honey to come out. There is, I should use the word, a process. So he tells them, go to the Had and see the land and see Mahi, what she is, and see the land, Aleha, that's in it. Hachazak hu harafeh, hameat hu imrav. Is it strong or is it weak? Is it few or are they many? This is like you would see... Um, what would you, like those analogies, what would you call them on the SATs where it would have um, first strong, then weak, or maybe I should say even like a chiastic structure, you have the strong, then the weak, and then the few, and then the many. So he's giving, he doesn't want to lead the witness by constantly saying first one of their attributes. In describing them, he's using an attribute that would say, are they strong first? And in the other, he would say, are they few first? And also, what is this, uh, what is this land? Hatovhi imra'a. Is it good or is it bad? And what are the cities that are there? Are they open cities or are they um, closed, fortified cities? And what about the land? Is it fat? Is it skinny? Do they have trees or not? And I want you to make sure that you take from the fruits of the trees, and now we have a little parentheses. And by the way, reader, what time of year did they go? They went during the time of Bikure Anavim, during the time of the uh, grape 
harvesting um, season. Oh no, Bikure means the Bikurim, the first ones of the grapes. And a lot, again, a lot of these little pieces help the commentaries um, round out their story later on when they say that it was Tisha B'Av when they came back and the people were crying. So if they got there during the time of the ripening of the grapes and you count 40 days, so the grapes ripen at the beginning of the season of the summer and 40 days later could very well have been as the um, commentaries say, the night of Tisha B'Av. Anyway, Vaya'alu, and we're feeling good about ourselves whenever we see Vaya'alu, okay, they go up and Vaya'turu, they do exactly what was told of them. They go from Midbarsin to Rehov, they come to Levochamat, and they go from the Negev, everything's going great. They come to Hebron, and there they see Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the children of the giants. And Chevron um, had been built way before even Mitzrayim. So it's telling you they're going back, I'm going to use the word to antiquity, they're going back to the very, very beginnings of early, early cities, ones that were even built. Uh, before um, Tzon, which is Tzon, which is a city in Egypt. So they're going back to an ancient city, and in this ancient city, you're going to see the children of the giants, which were way back in early Bereshit that we ever even uh, mentioned giants. And since Moshe had told them, Ve'ulkachtem mipri ha'aretz, what do they do? They come to Nachal Eshkol, and they cut from there Zmora. They cut from uh, there a cluster, a vine uh, of grapes, Eshkol Anavim, and they have to carry it by twos. Um, some people say that they're carrying by twos. There are a lot of depictions. One of the most radical or exciting Midrashim describes that they used two poles to carry one cluster of grapes. And they do a bigger play on words and they say that this word shnayim, bishnayim, means that there were two people on each edge of the pole, meaning there's four ends because there's two poles. The idea is that it required eight people to carry one cluster of grape. You could say Bishnayim that it required two people to carry a cluster of grapes, and even that would be exciting. But it boggles the mind if you think of one cluster of grape requiring, we, we, we dangle it like this, we think it's, you know, we see the pictures where they're eating it like that. No, this was the idea that the Torah wants to express to us or the commentaries want even further was how lush the land was and how big and beautiful the fruits were. Um, we're going to see that sometimes the blessings like huge grapes end up turning sour and we'll see how that means, how that works. So they come from tooting the audits. Um, they had been there 40 days. I am in verse 26. 
Vayilchu vayavoru el Moshe. This is already, our stomach is starting to rumble. We're getting maybe a tiny little stomach ache from this. They come back to Moshe and to Aharon and to call Adat B'nai Yisrael. Why is this even important? It's because when you're sent by Moshe, you should return to, there's an etiquette. You return and you give the message to the person who sent you on that mission. But instead, now they're going to come and they're going to put everybody on the same level. You know, there's sort of clearance when it comes to information. And Moshe should probably get the first information. But instead, they make a decision that Moshe, Ahadon, and all of the people are going to be informed simultaneously. You know, usually uh, when it comes to sensitive information, the information arrives at the top and then a strategy is formulated as to how to create the narrative for the masses and the rest of the people or whether to even inform them or not. None of that happened here. Everybody's given the information at the same time. And the first thing they do is show and tell. They show them the fruit. They take the positive fruit of the land and they use it as evidence of what? And they say, we came to the land that you sent us to. And yes, you were right. It is flowing with milk and honey. And this is its fruits. Had we stopped here, everybody would have been very happy. And 24 hours later, we very possibly would have already been in Eretz Israel. So before we go any further, we should recognize that we have two shelachs, two parshiyot that have shin lamed het. We have parashat beshalach and this parasha, which is parashat shlach. And in both these parshiyot, we have bookends or we have crises that the result of those crises that we have end up with God wanting to annihilate the entirety of the Jewish people and Moshe having to go in and literally advocate so that we don't get destroyed. So I'm pressing the pause button here for a second and I wanna say, wait a minute, what happened in Parashat Shlach? What covenant did we breach? What was the thing that we did that was so horrific that God would want to wipe us out completely? In Parashat Shalach, I'll remind you, Bnei Israel did the Chet HaEgel, the sin of the golden calf. And what was so terrible about the sin of the golden calf is that the people failed to see God as the creator. Why do I say that? It's because when they saw the calf, they said, Ele Elohecha Yisrael. This is Elohim. This is Bereshit Bara Elohim. You know, Elohim, the creator, creator. They compromised God's 
um, identity or God's presence or power as a creator, and they shifted it into something like this uh, golden calf. And where does this happen? At Sinai, at a pivotal time, at a time where they were paused to, poised and paused, poised to reach their highest pinnacle, their had. Remember the Alu, go up the had? Moshe is sort of, when he's telling them, start in the Negev and go up the had. This is exactly what he's telling them. Alitem et hahad is, you have a chance here to recapture the had of Har Sinai that you didn't go up. Well, now you're going into Eretz Israel. Eretz Israel is going to take the place of the had that you should have entered. And so here we start to say our two shalachs, beshalach. I said we compromised God's uh, presence in this world as a creator. And in Parashat, that was in Beshalach, in Parashat Shalach, what's going to happen here is also going to compromise uh, our relationship with God. But we're not going to question God as the creator because we're saying the land is Avat Chalav. It does have Devash. It does have pity. Everything in the, on the agricultural side is fantastic. What we're going to attack, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll say it here. What we're going to attack is not the creation of God, but we're going to attack God's involvement as our liberator, as the one who's going to help us cross the finish line and come into this land that he had promised us. And in both of these stories, back in the Egel, who was at the forefront? You had Aharon HaKohen, the leader of the people. He was, the, he was at the head of that whole story. And here, who's at the head of this story? The Nesi'im, among whom we said were Kalev and Yoshua, but the other 10 were also very high-ranking princes of the land. And why am I bringing up these two occurrences specifically? Is because God took us out of Egypt for two things. One, to tell us that I am going to be your God. And the other to tell you, to tell us, I am going to take them to the land that I promised their forefathers. Well, you totally uh, uh, compromised me as your God. And now here today, we're totally compromising God as the one who's going to take them into the land. Because what are they going to say? And now we could read their words. This word has rung in infamy in Verse 28, after they say it's a beautiful land, flowing of milk and honey, this big word, ephes, in Hebrew, ephes is a zero. In math, the ephes is going to negate. If you got to 100 and we bring you back to zero, it means we're retracting the whole 100, everything we gave you, and we're pressing the reset button. I'm erasing. Forget everything you heard about the flowing and the milk and the honey. Forget that. I'm pressing the, you know, on the calculator, FS. I'm pressing the, the C button. 
And that, that clears out everything that was said prior. That's Ephes. Now, forget everything I said. Ephes, zero, we're starting now, no. Ki az ha'am hayoshev ba'aretz. The people who are living in the land are strong. And, now this is very, very, so many things are said about these. The first most famous comment that is made, which is so real, is that if you want to say something and have it be believed, you have to first throw in a little honey, literally. You have to first say a little truth. You have to draw in your listener with something they want to hear. And then you could throw in the piece that they don't want to hear. So you have a captive audience. Yeah, flowing, yeah, milk, yeah, honey, yeah. So you already have me at my peaked interest. I'm all ears. And then you say that the city, that the people, the inhabitants are very, very strong. All right, that's not so great. You know, there's a ratio when you're going to have to give news that's not so great, you're supposed to give four positives to every negative or like a a, a happiness ratio. You could have four happy things you need, I should say. You need four happy, four good newses to sort of be able to equalize one bad news. Here, what the spies are gonna do is they're actually gonna do the opposite. Instead of giving four positives to one negative, they're gonna give four negatives to one positive. And they're going to say that the uh, cities are fortified. Meanwhile, we know that fortified cities means that the inhabitants are weak. Because if you're very strong, you don't need an alarm system. You don't need all these defenses if you're that strong. But they were saying that the cities are fortified to tell us you're not going to be able to penetrate them. And also we saw the children of the Anak. And also Amalek is there in the Eretz HaNegev. In other words, if you're going to go from the Negev to get to the Had, forget about the Had, you're never going to get there because you can't get past the Negev because Amalek is sitting there. And in case that wasn't bad enough, the Chiti, the Yevusi, the Emori, they're in the Had. So if you got past the Negev, you know what's waiting you on the Had? Only Amalek is in the Negev, but the Chiti, the Yevusi, and the Emori are all up on the uh, Had. And the Kena'ani is by the ocean and by the Jordan. So you don't stand the shot. Anywhere you turn or look, there's going to be some type of opposition. And now here's my possibly favorite number one personality, possibly in all of Torah. I know I'm saying a big thing, but I'm a very, very big fan of this next, this person that we're going to meet, who is Kalev. Vayahos Kalev et ha'am. Hos means what? To silence, to be quiet. And he tells the people this. Why I love him so much, you'll see from his statement. Vayas ha'am, I'm sorry, Kalevet ha'am el Moshe, to Moshe, and he says, please pay close attention to what Kalev says. And I just have to throw in at this point that what he says is comprised in eight 
words. Eight words meaning above nature. But watch how beautiful it is. He says, Alona ale, what are you worried about? We will go up. We will inherit it. Because we will be able to overcome it. I'm using the word overcome, but now I'm going to give you why this is so magnificent. Is it a pep talk? Yes. Is it the ultimate, I think I can, little engine that could speech? A thousand percent. But the words that he uses and the tense that he uses them in is key. He says, Alo, na ale. We will go up double. And we know that when a verb is duplicated, like yachol nuchal, that we're going to also see in this pasuk, of his eight words, two of them are doubled. Four, that's we used up half our statement with double language. The double entendre means alona ale. What is his thinking? Please, this is very important to understand how we're going to cross our own finish lines. While everybody else is looking backwards, while Lord's life, wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt and isn't able to move another step and isn't saved or spared. What is Kalev telling everybody in this pasuk? Don't look back. Don't look down. Look where? If you're looking at your shoes, where are you going to end up? On the floor. You're going to end up where you're looking. Alona Ales has so many beautiful uh, uh, imagery to it. Number one, Alo. You want to, you know, I'll give it to you. You want to look up. You want to think Harim. You want to see God. You want to see all that positivity. You got it. But he's saying something else. Alona Ale, he's taking the entire narrative and making it a futuristic narrative. And in his futuristic narrative, to me, the most beautiful part of this, why he makes it to my top of my list, is what does he say or how does he say it's going to come about? He says, we're going to inherit it. Does he use God's name? This is probably the first and last time you'll hear me celebrate a person for not using God's name. Usually, especially Sephardim, we say everything, Allah this and Allah that, and God should give us this and God should give us that. And here, do you hear God's name in this statement of Kalev? No. You know what he's telling the people? We have what it takes. The pep talk that Kalev is going to give us is not one that says, and you'll see, Yehoshua's going to give a pep talk, Kalev's going to give a pep talk. Yehoshua's pep talk is going to be all about God. Kalev's pep talk is all about what? Finding our own inner gumption, our own strength, our own ability, where he's going to come up and say, Yarashnuota. And you know why we're going to Yarashnuota? 
You wanted to say, because Hashem promised it to our forefathers. I, if I wasn't reading and somebody pulled away the sefer, I would have finished the pasuk. Yes, we're going to inherit it because God had promised Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, but that's not what he says. And this is so important for our own ability to move forward. You know what he says? Ki yachol nuchala. You know what Eretz Yisrael is? Do you know what the symbiotic relationship that the Jewish people have with the Jewish land? Do you know why we're going to inherit the land? I'm going to give you another reason that involves yourself, that involves your own investment. And what is that reason? Yachol nuchal. What did we say yachol means? I know that we could and we're able and we have what it takes and all of that stuff, that's great. But the real root of the word, yachol, comes from the first time it appears, vayichulu hashamayim vehaaretz. Yichulu means completion. And what is Kalev telling us? You know why we're going to inherit the land? Because the land needs us as much as we need it. Yachol nuchal la means that we're going to complete the land and the land is going to complete us. We need each other. We depend on each other. We're going to inherit the land because the survival of the Jewish people and humanity at large depends on our both completing each other. So that's why yachol nuchala. That's why we're going to be yarashnu. We are completing each other. So maybe right now at this moment, we may not have what it takes. Maybe right now this report could be scaring you because the children of the giants are there or because az ha'am, because the nation is strong. But don't measure who you are right here, right now, today, based on the circumstances that currently exist in the land. All you have to do is alona aleh. Come to the land, and when you get there, you'll have what it takes. Because by coming to the land, you will become completed. Right now, you're incomplete. So looking at the scenario from your space of incompletion, of course you're going to be lacking. Alona aleh. Sometimes you just, and of course comes from Kalev, comes from Nachshon, comes from Yehuda, the first one to travel. Don't look back. Just keep swimming. Move forward. And in moving forward, you will uh, become complete. You will get what you need to keep moving forward. I think Kalev is giving everybody um, the understanding, not only personally, that we shouldn't wait to be completed before going to an endeavor. Sometimes that endeavor itself gives you what you need to get to that next level or to get to that mountain. And what he does is really he puts all the cards on the table and doesn't say, sit home and pray to God and tell him to please give you what you need. Alona ale, you have what you need. 
All you have to do is activate your potentials and you yourself will become completed. Now, what the response of the people is Ha'anashim, the people who, come, who went up with him, say, They respond, no, we won't be able to go up. They're stronger than us. And they took out Lashon Hara. Diba is evil talk about the land that they had taru ota, that they had scouted. And they said, this land is an eretz ochelet yoshvehahi. It's a land that eats up and swallows its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw there were anshe midot. I know today we hear the midot and we say, oh, you have good midot. Midot here means measurements. It means they're huge, they're big in size. And also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of the Anak. I should take a minute and say, here comes, instead of one negative and four positives, you're gonna see four negatives to the one positive. And what happens, and this is a very famous pasuk, they say, we saw the children of the Anak, and we saw the Nephilim. People believe the Nephilim were some type of half-human creatures, maybe that, fell from the skies that had superhuman powers. I don't know exactly what they were, but these words are really, really um, troubling. And so we were in our own eyes as grasshoppers. And since we were grasshoppers in our own eyes, which means what? We had an esteem of ourselves and we calculated our worth, our value, our height in relation to them. And maybe we saw ourselves as grasshoppers because they were such big giants. So we were like tiny little ants, you know, when you're on a plane, everybody looks tiny. We saw ourselves as grasshopper and then they make this fatal assumption. And I say fatal because they're going to die because of this. Veken hayinu be'enehem. They decided to see themselves through the eyes of the inhabitants. And they decided to believe that because they saw themselves as small, that the, it's, a, it's a projection. The way they saw themselves, they imagined that they were seen in that way. And then what did they do? They acted on that fear. And what happens? Vatisa kol Everybody lifts up vayitnu et kolam. They give their voices vayivku, and they cry. And this is the famous statement that the midrashim say that God says, "Oh, you cried now for no reason. You came up with this whole hypothetical scenario that they are giants and you are grasshoppers, and they're gonna eat you all up, and the land itself is gonna eat you up." You came up with this whole little Shapahara's imagery for yourself. Well, guess what? If you're going to cry for no reason, I'm going to give you a reason to cry. And that's what the Midrashim say about the Tisha B'Av. That this time, that this happened on Tisha B'Av, and many future tragedies befell our people on this night. And we always say when we learn on Tisha B'Av that we have what it takes to change that day from Yagon to Simcha. 
that the way we brought the day into being a day of um, sorrow and weeping, we also can turn that around. So let's hope and pray that our generation is the one to see that. And they come and they complain to Moshe and Aharon Vayomru and they say, Lumatnu Be'eretz Mitzrayim. So what are the, um, what is the progression when somebody goes down this road, down the road of all is lost, I am powerless, I could do nothing about my circumstances, they first give way to weeping. The tear, they're not, they're tears of despair, tears of defeat. And what comes after that? Quickly after they cry, they start to complain. We wish we would have died in Eretz Mitzrayim instead of this horrible desert that you brought us. Why did you bring us here? So that we could die by the sword um, and our wives and our children should be plundered. We would have been better off in Mitzrayim. You know what? Let's appoint a new Rosh, a new head, and let's go back to Egypt. So who are they blaming now? They're blaming Moshe for even bringing them out of Egypt. And I, we're reading this and we're saying, why? You came out of the most horrible place, the inferno of the world, and that's where you want to go back to because of a image that you made in your own head about what Eretz Israel is going to be like based on this testimonial. And what happens? Moshe and Aaron fall on their faces in front of the whole, all of the people, and now Yehoshua has what to say. So we already gave the eight words of Kalev saying that Kalev is going to use double language, meaning now and in the future, and the message he's going to deliver is you have what it takes. You don't need to depend on anybody to make it happen for you. Yehoshua, now it says, Yehoshua binun ve'kalev, so that person that is named first is who they usually ascribe as being the main spokesperson. They are from the Tarim, and they rip their clothes, and B'nai Israel says, um, and they tell B'nai Israel, I'm sorry, Here's the four positives, and they say the land was tova ha'aretz me'od me'od. They're trying to do what? To recalibrate the balance from being all negative to put some positive stuff on the scale. And this is what Yehoshua would say because he is the protege of Moshe Rabbeinu. If Moshe is his mentor, what would you expect from Yoshua? Im chafetz banu Hashem veheviotanu el haaretz. If God wants to, He could bring us to this land, and He'll give it to us, because it is flowing with milk and honey. Ach be Hashem al timrodu. Again, He is Moshe's spokesperson, so He's gonna say, "Don't rebel against God." Ve'atem lo tira'u, don't be afraid of this am, ki lachmenuhim, they're like bread to us. This imagery, we've seen it before with the rolling loaves that uh, was in a dream, or this idea of lachmenu means we could eat them as easily as a piece of bread, they're like a piece of cake. Sartzi lame'alehim, the commentaries say that 
what Yehoshua was alluding to was that their protection or their angel of protection is no longer with them. But Hashem itanu, we have Hashem with us. Al tiraum, so don't be fearful of them. But the people wanted to stone them, and Hashem now appears in Ohel Moed, and He is going to end this whole uh, horrific um, unraveling that's taking place. I want to say one more word about Kilach Menuhim. I think it's interesting, just in case we don't get to it, that our Perasha happens to have in it the mitzvah, so it's nice if you have a chance or whatever it is and you want to bake this week. It has in it the law of giving the, um, where is that? The challah, where is that challah? Here. In chapter 15, if you want to peek at it, in verse 17, it tells the people about reshit arisotechem challah tarimu terumah, the idea of bringing challah. And maybe it's here to sort of tip its hat to what Yehoshua was saying. He's saying, they are, not only are they like a piece of bread to us, but since I'm mentioning that the land is flowing with milk and honey, let me tell you, look what the Torah says in verse 17, Hashem tells Moshe, tell B'nai Israel, when you come to the land that I'm bringing you to, you're going to eat you're going to eat bread from the land meaning the way I told you you're going to have milk and you're going to have honey you're also going to have bread he doesn't say you're going to have wheat he's saying bread I will take care of everything for you you're going to come to the land you're going to shake your head and you're going to say oh gosh where do we start the place is a mess, it's rocks, it's beige, there's nothing to eat, there's nothing, nobody's, there's no uh, hydroponics or anything, uh, it's no greenhouses here, what, what, what are we going to do? Hashem is already painting a picture, maybe he's echoing Yehoshua's ki lachmenuhem, not only are we going to have lechem, but the enemies are going to be as easy as lechem, as, as eating a piece of bread. You might say, oh, eating a piece of bread is not so easy. And here the Torah is going to say, when you come to Eretz Yisrael, don't worry. I will make it easy for you. I will help you so that things that in the natural world come more difficultly will come more um, easily to you. And so as we move forward, unfortunately, as a result of what these... um, reports and how these reports affected the people, the punishment is ultimately going to be, and you'll see it here um, together, it's going to be 40 years. So in chapter 14, verse 33, ba'midbar. So anybody, I should really show you verse 28 first, saying, anybody who is um, 20 years and older um, are not going to come into the land. It means you're not going to come into the land except for Kalev and Yehoshua. But it's your children, those children that you said are going to be plundered 
they're the ones who are actually going to come into the land. And now verse 32 says, uh, you're going to be buried in this desert. And verse 33 says, um, your children are going to be wandering or shepherds in this Midbar for 40 years um, until it's a little gory or gruesome. Um, until all of your bodies are buried here. And then after 40 years, you're going to end up, I'm going to bring the people to the land. Why 40 years in the desert? It says specifically, Yom Leshana, Yom Leshana. Um, one day, one year for every day that they had um, spent in the desert. And now we read this whole story, and of course, we're not going to want to leave on a sad note. We're going to want to ask the opening questions again, and maybe we could come to a little bit better of an understanding of what actually happened here. What was so terrible? Um, that's a big question is, what was so terrible? And of course, what was so terrible is that not, I, I don't want to say the aftermath, which most people say, the aftermath meaning that they came back, gave a report, and the people panic. Maybe it wasn't just the aftermath that was so terrible, but maybe it was the request itself. Maybe it was that they didn't have faith in the first place, and they needed to check it out. And good for Ramban, he comes back and he responds to that, and he says, you know something? You really can't blame the people for going because it says that Hashem sent them and Hashem let them go. And he responds to that by saying, Hashem said that they should go because he didn't want to give us the impression that we should somchim al hanes, that we should just rely on miracles. Yes, we have an obligation today. Sahal has an obligation. They can't just say, oh, God said he's giving us the land and that's the end of the story. No, we have to do all our hishtadlut, our efforts. We have to scope out and plan every last mission to the best of our ability to have a positive outcome. And Ramban Nachmanides is saying, this is part of that. This is saying for then and for the future, a little bit what Kalev is saying, we're going to go up, meaning we have to make that happen. Yes, we're going to have to go up from the negative. Yes, it's going to be difficult. And going up is going to be as torturous or as strenuous as climbing a mountain. It's not just going to be one uh, walk in the park. Getting to Eretz Israel and being there, freed from our enemies and living in peace and having, as the famous lines, eating each man under his own grapevine and eating from our own grapes, it's going to take some work. It's not only going to take physical work, it's also going to take emotional faith and believe and belief and trust. These are the two ingredients, not just back then, not just for the Jews who are leaving Egypt, who are in the desert. 
it's the same recipe for us today. To what extent do we see God as our creator? To what extent do we see God as our liberator? The two stories, the one in Beshalach, where we decide to put our trust and our faith and our belief in something foreign, and that foreign thing is Ele Elohecha Yisrael. So to the degree that we trust that outside things are going to uh, save us, to that degree we're compromising the God as creator. And to the and of course it's a balance because yes we do you know there's a phrase it's called the locus of control, where is our locus? Our locus is our location. Where do we believe our locus of control to be? Do we believe that we are controlled by outside forces and other things determine what happened to me, or to what degree do we feel that the locus of control is an internal one? and that I make my own destiny and I make my own uh, uh, resolutions and I'm able to have much more control than I recognize. So these stories are asking us to sit and question and recognize where is our locus of control? It's funny that the word locus sounds like locusts, which are the chagavim, which are the grasshoppers, which we allowed to totally run away with us because we started down this slippery slope of imagining ourselves as tiny because we physically measured ourselves in inches versus their gianthood in inches and found ourselves lacking. And in that measurement, we saw ourselves through their eyes and the whole thing went kaput. But the truth of the matter is, when God says, Kalev and Yahushua, they're the only two that are going to go into the new land. I think what God is saying is you need to take Kalev with you because Kalev is a reminder to move forward and to believe in your own and trust in your own self to get the job done. And then we're going to couple him with Yahushua who's going to say, yes, Believe in kochi ve'otzim yadi. Believe in your own strengths, but at the same time, im chafetz Hashem banu. Recognize that there is an element. We need both of these forces, both of these realities, for us to move forward and for us to get literally to Eretz Israel, to the Har, to the lofty place. Part of it has to be our own sweat and tears which is what Kalev is suggesting, and part of it is we need to be in God's good graces so that he will accompany us. Together with the Kalev model and the Yehoshua model, then we do hope, Yachol Nuchala, we do hope that we will all be able, as a nation, to come into Eretz Israel. Not only will that complete each and every one of us, but we will also contribute to the completion of the creation of the land. And that's the land that God promised to the forefathers, the land that's going to have the children within it. You notice the two blessings are always together, that Hashem promises Abraham children and he blesses them the land. 
those blessings always come together because they're codependent. The children are going to be completed by the land and the land is not completed without her children dwelling uh, within her. And so I hope and pray that we are able in our day to see the coming together of the promise, the coming together of the beracha, and personally, each one of us are able to climb that mountain with our own inner strength from Kalev and our own sense of faith and spirituality from Yehoshua, and we're able to uh, move past a story that's so uh, difficult to read and turn it into a day of simcha and turn this yagon and turn all of our future um, challenges that we've had during this time period. If we change our focus, then we could change the makeup and the way that the day is structured and we are able to really take it and turn it from darkness to light, hopefully soon, and hopefully we could all share in this uh, merit together. So thank you for joining us, and have Amen. a beautiful week. Amen. Thank you.